Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. HousingWire Daily examines the most compelling mortgage, real estate, and fintech articles reported from the HousingWire newsroom. Each afternoon, the HW Digital team provides our listeners with a deeper look into the stories that are helping move markets forward. Hosted and produced by Alcina Lloyd and Victoria Wickham. And now, here's our host. Pulled from the hottest topics coming across our news desk. I'm Victoria Wickham, and this is Housing Wire Daily. Today, you'll be listening to the first episode of Honest Conversations with host Alcina Lloyd. Honest Conversations is a new mini-series that will examine the state of minority homeownership in America. Each Wednesday, join Alcina as she provides listeners with a greater perspective on how race, housing, and wealth intersect and what experts are doing to close the gap. Today's episode features an interview with the Urban Institute Senior Research Associate Michael Neal. In this episode, Neal delves into the data and history behind housing, as well as how inequality within housing came to be and what it means for today's borrowers. But before we listen, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Caliber Home Loans is committed to helping customers at all stages of homeownership. Whether you're the first in your family to buy a home or just a first-time home buyer, our focus is on getting you into the home of your dreams and helping you stay there. Contact Caliber Home Loans if you'd like to learn more. Hello listeners, welcome to Honest Conversations, the show that examines the state of minority home ownership in America. I'm your host, Alcina Lloyd, and this is Honest Conversations. If you ever wanted to know the data and history behind housing, well, you probably want to hear this interview. It's all about how inequality within housing came to be and what it means for today's borrowers. My guest, Michael Neal, is a senior research associate with the Urban Institute, and today we'll have an honest conversation on housing. Michael Neal, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Of course. Thank you. Michael, let's take it way back and discuss the history of housing in America. Mm -hmm. To frame the question, let's start with the 1940s, which is accredited for the rise of the modern American suburb. During this time, in the decades following World War II, American businesses were thriving, unionization peaked, and wages climbed, therefore stimulating economic growth and introducing a new consumer economy. The economy was doing so well, the government enacted the Readjustment Act in 1944, also known as the GI Bill, which offered Americans many things like low-interest home loans, a college stipend, loans to start a business, and unemployment benefits. Michael, what was this time like for the average American family? You know, I, I think the, the trajectory was certainly moving forward. I mean, you know, you know, we had just exited the World War II. The Great Depression was still um, in the rearview mirror. Um, but on the other hand, um, the United States, by and large, was uh, the only game in town. Um, a lot of the other uh, previous powers had uh, really been decimated, I'd say, by, uh, by the war um, in a way in which the United States did not. And I think that there was a general opportunity, um, particularly for those that had served their country, um, to uh, be given the chance to build their life, um, having given a number of years um, in service to America. 
in that kind of uh, ethos, so to speak, the legislation that um, you mentioned were passed, I think, in large part um, to support that process. And I think you saw that. You saw at a macro level, um, you saw a very strong uh, uh, economic growth. You saw a, a recovery in terms of uh, population growth um, as people were getting married and having children. We know that fertility rates were quite high during this period. Um, but we also know that people were getting a college education. Uh, manufacturing was growing. Um, wages were growing, as you mentioned. Um, and access to home ownership was expanding. Um, and all of that, I think, um, uh, led to all of that combined with innovations that were taking place um, really led to, I think, the beginnings of a recovery from what was a fairly tumultuous period, at least in the aggregate. Now I want to focus on what many Americans believe was the first modern American suburb community, Levittown, which was built in the late 1940s in Long Island, New York, by William Levitt. In 1947, real estate developer Abraham Levitt and his two sons, William and Alfred, broke ground on a planned community located in Nassau County, Long Island. The former farmland was transformed into a suburban community, Levittown, that was quickly rented out to thousands of men, many veterans returning from World War II. Following the success of the mass-produced, well-manicured Levittown, the Levitts created similar communities in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, in turn establishing the American suburb. These initial suburban communities were clean, cost-effective, and popular. They also were explicitly racist. Each renter had to sign a lease agreement that the house could not, quote, be used or occupied by any person other than members of the Caucasian race, end quote. Michael, how did new economic structures and suburban spaces of the post-war period influence inequality and affluence? No, that's, that, that I think is kind of, it's a question I think we've been grappling with uh, uh, then um, and what we are, are really grappling with today. But to not get ahead of all of this, you know, I think that, uh, uh, number one, in aggregate, I think things were moving upward for sure. Um, that being said, though, you know, the devil is in the details. Um, and what we really observed um, was that a certain category of people were able to take advantage um, of uh, these opportunities and use them for their good. And others were actively and consciously um, excluded from them. Um, and so additional housing in the suburbs certainly allowed, um, particularly uh, white Americans, um, to access the credit and to access the opportunities to move into those neighborhoods and um, over a period of time to uh, experience the benefits of the financial benefits, at least um, in the form of uh, price appreciation and uh, broader equity. Um, but I think that there was uh, a certain group of people who uh, were particularly people of color um, who by and large did serve their country also, um, who were uh, actively and consciously excluded um, from these opportunities and were not allowed into these new fangled um, suburban communities and by and large were therefore not able to benefit um, at least to the same degree. All right. So it's it's interesting that you brought that up because in the 1950s, when many middle and lower class white Americans were moving to suburbs by the help of the government through spending programs like the FHA and the GI Bill, data shows many African Americans and other racial minorities were systematically shut out. What were some of the laws or rules that prevented them from equal housing? Yeah. Um, really, you know, redlining is one that really comes to mind and, and the covenants and the, the rules that were put into those covenants that kept people of color from achieving homeownership um, in those particular communities. Um, 
the laws that, uh, such as redlining, that kept people from getting a mortgage um, and therefore not being able to access home ownership. So we've really described two steps. We've described rules that kept you from achieving home ownership, but then we've described given that you were able to achieve home ownership, you were not able to access it in the places that could give you the maximum amount of benefit. Over time, that's going to build on itself um, and lead to, I believe, a portion of the gaps that we see today with respect to home ownership and with respect to wealth more generally. All right. So history shows as we examine relationships between federal organizations like the HOLC, FHA, and private banks, lenders, and real estate agents, there's a story of standardized policies that have promoted segregation in the housing market. Michael, how has it impacted the legacy of housing for people of color in America today? Yeah, I, you know, I think that that's such a such a key question because of of where we are. Um, that is, by and large, while we have seen, while we saw a bit of an improvement in the home ownership rate for African Americans in the few years leading up to the current pandemic, um, the gap between African Americans and uh, and white Americans with respect to home ownership remained as wide as it was back in the days in which we were talking about. Um, in spite of a lot of the policy um, action that uh, that has been taken to try to eradicate it. Um, I think that that is very important because, number one, because home ownership has very important uh, implications for family outcomes Um, and not just wealth, not just in terms of housing equity, um, but also in terms of household stability, uh, development of the community in which you live. Um, as well as political clout. We know that homeowners in a particular community tend to have a stronger say and tend to be much more involved in the local politics um, than, say, renters. Um, and so all of that, I think, is combined and really puts home ownership um, into a very key light. All right. Thank you for answering that. And as we wrap today, I'd like to end with one of my favorite parts of the interview. I'd like to ask each Honest Conversation guest the same two mm-hmm. questions. What is your biggest area of concern for minority home ownership? And what can the industry do today to address this gap? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, for me, I think that my the, the biggest concern that I have is that African-Americans and Hispanics in particular are not experiencing the benefits of home ownership to the degree that their white counterparts are. That is, even if we were somehow to close the gap um, in home ownership, um, the gap with respect to the financial benefits of home ownership remains wide uh, for a number of reasons, part of which I think are rooted in a history of systemic racism, part of which are the economics um, that currently prevail. Um, And so I encourage uh, both myself and my own research and my own analysis, but also uh, for the industry more generally, that it's not just enough to get African-Americans into home ownership and Hispanics into home ownership. We must also take the extra steps and and implement the necessary policies to ensure that these new homeowners actually benefit to the same degree um, as, uh, as other Americans are able to. Thank you so much for joining us today, Michael. Thank you. Of course. Join us next Wednesday for some more Honest Conversations. Now more than ever, the housing industry is looking to its leaders for answers. That's why each week, the Housing News Podcast invites a new mortgage, fintech, or real estate executive to the show to provide its listeners with more perspective on the announcements and news stories crossing HousingWire's news desk. 
hosted by Sarah Wheeler and produced by Elsina Lloyd, the Housing News Podcast is now available on iTunes, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, and more. That's a wrap for today's episode of Housing Wire Daily. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, and join us again tomorrow.